I've mentioned that Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's obviously so because it's the first book in the Bible. You're going to find the first mention of a whole lot of things in Genesis because of where it appears in the Scripture. Now, there are basically three great beginnings in Genesis. First of all, there's the beginning of the human race. We learn from creation that God made Adam and Eve our first parents. He created them from the dust of the ground, breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. And that was the beginning of the human race. There's another new beginning after the worldwide flood, when there were just eight people remaining on the earth, Noah and his wife, their three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and their three wives. And from those eight, there was another new beginning uh, in the human race. And thirdly, there was the beginning of the chosen nation and the chosen people through a man called Abram. Now Genesis, you may remember, I told you, is divided into two sections. The first 11 chapters, and then chapters 12 through 50. In the first 11 chapters of the book, the affairs of the entire human race are in view. So when you're reading chapters 1 through 11, remember this. This has to do with the general human race. But from chapter 12 to the end of the book, it is biographical, but it's biographical in relation to only four men in particular, all of them belonging to one family. So those first 11 chapters of Genesis are, we might say, fragmentary in character because they summarize a period that lasts over 2,000 years. But the final 39 chapters of Genesis cover roughly, scarcely 400 years. And they are far more detailed. It's not fragmentary, piecemeal history. It's very detailed. In a precise manner, the lives of these men are dealt with. So we could actually say that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are introductory. They form the preface to the entire Bible and not just to the remainder of Genesis, though they do that as well. Chapters 1 through 11 are really the foundation on which rests the remainder of the Old Testament. Someone put it like this, as the root is to the stem, so are chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis to chapters 12 through 50. And as the stem to the tree, so is Genesis to the rest of the Bible. So this is all very foundational. It's a good thing to start out, if you've never read the Bible before, to start out in Genesis. Read the book of Genesis and see there the foundation of everything, including, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, the very first gospel promise concerning the seed of the woman, a reference to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to look at Genesis chapters 10 and 11, the whole human race is set before us here. 
But from chapter 12 onwards, the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to one man only and his descendants. A family and a nation that became God's chosen channel of his purpose of redemption for the entire elect race. The commentator Griffith Thomas wrote about Genesis in this way. Quote, Abraham is clearly the central figure of this book. Chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 25, verse 10, being devoted to him. And all that follows is seen to be closely connected with and to arise out of the record of his life. So this individual, Abram, later to be called Abraham, is a foundational character in Scripture. We have the story of Abram commencing at the latter end of chapter 11, but especially in chapter 12. And it's the story of the father of all them that believe. That is how he is described in the Scripture. Now, when we consider Genesis, we see the narrative of the patriarchs covers the entire second half of the book. As I've already stated, from chapter 12 to chapter 50, the biographies of four particular men take up the most of the space in this part of the book. In fact, all of it. Those four men are Abraham, Isaac, his son, Jacob, his son, and Joseph, his son. These are the four individuals. But the story of Abraham in particular is interesting to us because he's described as the father of the faithful. All those who are of faith, the Bible says, are the children of Abraham. Now that's an interesting thing to consider. Most people will say, well, Abraham is the father of the Jews, right? He's the father of the Jewish race. But actually, when you look at what the book of Galatians says about this, it talks about how that in the gospel... Abraham, who believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, he became the father of all believers. Notice this in Galatians 3, verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Now that doesn't mean that Abraham still doesn't have children in terms of ethnicity. Let's not misunderstand what the Bible says. When the Bible says in Galatians 3 and verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This is talking about spiritual standing. I look out on the congregation today and I see men and I see women. Of course there are male and female still, even in Christ Jesus. That is according to the flesh. There are those, even in this day, though slavery has been abolished in most of the world, there are still people who are in bondage and some who are free. And there are Jews 
and there are Gentiles. That's still true. The idea that there's no longer any distinction because of ethnicity being done away with in the gospel is false. The fact of the matter too is, and I don't want to develop that today, but God still has a purpose for national Israel. You read Romans chapter 11 and you'll not be able to come to any other conclusion if you're being honest with what the scripture says there. Even at this present time, Paul said, there is a remnant that is among the Jews according to the election of grace. So let's not misunderstand what the Bible says when it talks about us all being one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek or some other nationality. If you're saved by grace, you're in Christ and you're on an equal standing. But the fact of the matter is that Abraham, though he is still viewed as the first of the Jews, if you like, yet he is, Galatians 3 verse 7, the father of the faithful. They which are of faith, that's us who believe as well, the same are the children of Abraham. And that's a wonderful thought. So when you look at Abraham, you're entitled to say that what the Bible refers to in relation to his faith applies also to our faith, if we're believers. And the life of faith that Abraham lived, and by the way, Hebrews chapter 11 makes it clear that he did largely live a life of faith. We'll come to some of the times in his life when he didn't operate by faith, when he operated by sight. But if you take the whole of his life, you take the entire summation of Abraham's experience as a believer, he was a man of great faith. And Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8. Abraham lived a life of faith. He is obviously one of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. But he himself is a tremendous picture of living by faith. And that's what I want us to think about today. That's the topic for this message. Living by faith. Let me ask you a very personal question. Are you this morning living by faith in this world? Or are you operating by sight? Are you living by what you see and by what you experience? Or are you seeking to live by faith? Trusting the Lord, no matter the circumstances. The life of faith. Let's say two things about this in particular in relation to Abraham. He is a testimony of faith. Abraham is... In scripture, a testimony of faith. He's obviously one of the heroes of faith. One of the first ones spoken of by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 11. But we learn that Abram was a man who was justified by faith. We already considered this on Reformation Sunday. Genesis 15 verse 6. This is a pivotal scripture in relation to Abraham, but also in relation to the whole matter of justification. Genesis 15 verse 6, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, 
counted it to him or reckoned it to him for righteousness. Abram was justified by faith. That is to say, his faith lay hold upon the promise of God in relation to the saving work of Christ. When you study the New Testament, you'll find that Abram is a testimony of faith in that he is a great example, above all others, of justifying faith, spoken of repeatedly in Romans, in Galatians, and in the epistle of James. Let's look at some of these verses very quickly. Romans chapter 4. I don't want to be redundant, but I think it's important to repeat important truth. Even though we might know these things already, Peter even said when he was writing to his writer, to to, to those that were reading his epistle, I'm going to tell you some of the same things that you've heard before. But it's important. And so here we have it in Romans chapter 4. In relation to Abraham, it says, verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory or to boast, but not before God. If he was able to be justified, pardoned from his sins, and made ready for heaven by his works, then he would have something to boast in. But he says, not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him, For righteousness. And as we read on down through the chapter, we see that Abram lived by faith. He believed the promise of God. Verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he has promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. And look at these closing words. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and raised again because of our justification. That's what those words mean. For, because of. He is a testimony of faith. We've read Galatians chapter 3. No need to read those verses again. But we see there emphasized the justifying faith of Abram. He believed God. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Galatians 3 verse 6. And again, in James chapter 2, the same information is recorded for us in regard to Abram. How was he saved? James chapter 2 tells us in verse 23 and the scripture was fulfilled which saith this is Genesis 15 verse 6 Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God Abraham showed by his exercise of faith that he was a true believer Justified before men by his works. 
and also justified before God by being willing to offer up Isaac. That was an act of obedience, showing that in fact he did possess true faith. Faith without works is dead. So Abram is a great testimony of faith. And his experiences that are recorded in Genesis teach us great lessons about living by faith. See, this is the thing. Being a Christian is not just signing up to a doctrinal statement. It's not just signing up to a formula and saying, yes, I believe that to be true. But faith, true faith in Christ, goes into operation in everyday life. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it then causes you to think differently, to live differently, to be different. And if it doesn't, you have to wonder about its reality. That's what James chapter 2 is speaking about, by the way. You can say that you have faith. A man may say, I have faith. But do the works of his life give evidence of that? Are you living by faith in this world? Abraham shows us what that looks like. What does it look like, living by faith? Well, if you study the life of Abram, and we hope to do that in coming weeks in the will of the Lord, take another look at this man. We learn that he was a man who lived by faith, including on those certain occasions when he temporarily failed to do so. And those are important little aberrations for us to note. See, every man at his best is but a man at best. There are no perfect men but one. The only perfect man who's ever walked the face of the earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the rest of them have feet of clay. All of them, without exception, were sinners, sinners saved by grace. But there were times in their lives when they did not do what they should have done. For example, you see how God sums up the life of David in one place. And he talks about David being a man after his own heart. He was a faithful man. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And then there's this little caveat, except in the matter of her that had been the wife of Urias. See, the Holy Spirit hones in on that one occasion when David was tempted and went astray, committed adultery with another man's wife, as a result of that, decided to have her husband placed in a, a position in the battle where he would almost certainly be killed, allowing him to be free to take his wife Bathsheba as his own wife. And that's what happened. And it brought terrible consequences into the life of David and into the life of the nation. So that David's own son was committing adultery with many in the sight of all Israel and bringing his father's name and the name of God into disrepute because David went astray in that one area. But does that mean that we can't talk about David as being a man after God's own heart? Of course it doesn't mean that. 
Because the great preponderance of the evidence is that David lived for God. But just not perfectly. And every other man is the same. And Abram was the same. And we can learn from those few occasions when he failed to operate by faith and rather operated by sight. We can still, however, say Abraham, as the Bible puts it, was the friend of God and the father of the faithful, that Abraham was a testimony of faith. But there's something else. And that is in Abram, we see not only a testimony of faith, but we see a testing of that faith. Now I'm going to speak about that in the remainder of the message. The testing of faith. Do you know that true faith is only proven to be genuine as it is tested? How do you prove that gold is of a certain Standard, if it's pure gold, as it would be called, well, it has to be tested by the fire. It has to be placed in the crucible and put into the furnace. And then you can see the quality of the gold. If it's pure gold, there's not going to be any scum rising to the surface. But when gold is mixed with dross, the heat and the flame will bring that dross to the surface and will have to be scraped off. And that's what God does in our lives. He puts us into the furnace of testing so that the dross will come to the surface and he will scrape it off. And any person who's a goldsmith, when he deals with gold and gets to purify the gold, he will keep working with it and keep working with it, keep heating it, putting it into the furnace for the right amount of time with the right temperature until when he looks into the gold as the finished product, he can see his own image in it. That's what God is doing with us. He wants to see the image of Christ in us. And how is that going to come about? It's going to come about through our faith being exercised and tested. Your faith will be tested. You know, the idea that's often preached by some You come to the Lord and you'll have your best life now. Where have we heard that? Your best life now. Really? Tell me about Job. Read the book of Job. Would Job have signed up to that? My best life now? He lost his entire family in one day. All ten children. He lost his wealth, all of it, in one day. He lost his health from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He was covered in boils, putrous boils that would give off pus and so on. It had to be wrapped. And his wife turned against him. Job, you'll have your best life now when you're believing in the Lord. What utter nonsense. Some of the greatest of saints have been the most tested and tried of people. Including in their health. Faith is tested. And it's tested and tried and put into exercise that it might grow. See there are problems that we encounter in the Christian life. 
And they're things that test our faith. That's why we call it the trial of faith. Remember those great words of Peter? 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, and it's God who decides, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The word means trials. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And if you read through First Peter, you see that there's a lot about trial. First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. goes on to speak of any man's suffering as a Christian. You know this notion, you come to the Lord and all your problems will be over. All your money difficulties, all dealt with. You've heard these charlatans on some of these charismatic television programs talking to people, and all their money problems will be gone. If you only do this, that and the other thing. You'll have no problems with bad health. And if you've got enough faith, you'll be cured from anything. If that were true, you'd have three and four and five hundred year old people walking around. Because nobody would ever die. Right? No one would ever die. No one would ever have to go to hospital. If this is true. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. There are problems that we encounter as believers that are just like problems that everybody else in the world experiences. There's nothing on hospital wards that says, wicked sinners only, here. There are trials that come upon all people, no matter who they are. And then there are special trials that come upon God's people. There are things that try us that don't try the ungodly. Things that test our faith. And we see this in Abraham's life. The testing of faith. The life of faith means that God's promise may at certain times appear not to be true. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. And I say it to my own shame. That I've thought, Lord, that promise you gave to me, it's it's not worth the paper it's written on. Because it hasn't been fulfilled. And these are things that cause us to question at times. The promise of God, it appears not to be true. But it is true. It is true. Someone said that uh, God's word is true. And I believe it. And that settles it. And someone else said, God's word is true. And even if you don't believe it, it's still God's word. And that settles it. But you see, there are times when God's promise appears not to be true. And our experience, our human experience, creates a tension with our profession. Here's what we profess, but here's the tension that comes. And we see it in Abraham. Repeatedly, he was tested. And sometimes he failed. 
But here's the thing, folks. Even his failures did not negate the promise. And we see in Hebrews chapter 11, which is actually a commentary on the book of Genesis, that Abram did something by faith. Let's read it. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. Now that takes us back to Genesis chapter 12, the opening verses there, and you will find uh, that God had said these things to Abram, I'm going to bless you, I'll bless those that bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and so on. And Abram went out at the call of God, he didn't know where he was going to, he just knew that there was a land of promise, but he didn't know where it was, he just had to trust. Now some people will say, that faith is like taking a leap in the dark. And I can tell you that that is exactly what faith is not. Faith is not taking a leap in the dark. And I think there are times when people have the right idea when they say let go and let God. What they mean is that I'm going to turn it over to him. But the idea of letting go and letting God is not really scriptural. It isn't. You know why? Because you don't let go. You lay hold. You don't let go. You lay hold of God's promises. When somebody throws you a rope, you don't let go. You lay hold. You catch on to it. And so faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not blind trust. It's not taking a step onto fresh air. Because there's something for faith to lean upon. And that brings in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Look at it. This is not a leap in the dark. This is not just hoping for the best. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance, as the authorized version in the margin would indicate, could be translated ground or confidence. Isn't that good? Now faith is the substance. It's the ground of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. This is not something ephemeral. This is not some fresh air that you step out onto. This is solid ground. Faith steps out on God's promise. And that's what Abram did. See, there's something for your faith to lean upon. It's called God's Word. It's His promise. But here's the thing. It is trust, even where we do not know certain details, nor what the outcome will be. See, there's the, the mystery of it. There are things that God calls you to do. And you may think, well, how am I going to do that? How is that going to work out? But that's not for us to bother with. What we're to bother with is the promise. This is what God has said. So I'm going to stand upon that promise. I'm going to go forward on that promise. I'm going to trust the Lord. Even when I don't know how the details will work out. I do not know what the outcome will be. And so you look at Abraham, what did he do? I'll read it again. Hebrews 11 verse 8. When he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance. There's the promise. Obeyed. 
And he went out, not knowing whither he went. See, the Lord had given him a promise. And that's dealt with later on. It says here in verse 13, In general, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them. Then verse 17, Abram, when he was tried, he offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. See, this is how Abram could do what he did. Because he had God's promise. This is the ground that faith stands upon. Now, when Abram went at God's call out of Mesopotamia to go towards Canaan, he didn't even know where he was going at that particular time, but he obeyed the Lord. What happened? You read in Genesis chapter 12 what happened. There was a famine that came. And when that famine came, that's Genesis 12 and verse 10, there was a famine in the land. It says, Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Now we can't expound all of this today, but you'll find in your Bible that going down into Egypt was never a good thing. That was not a good thing. In Isaiah chapter 30, it talks about woe unto them that go down to Egypt for help. Egypt was always viewed as a going down, not just because geographically that was true, but it was also true spiritually. Egypt in the Bible, remember, is a type of the world. So Abram going down into Egypt, that was not a good thing. He went out at God's call. A famine came. There's a test of his faith. He would not have expected that. So how was he going to respond? Was he going to continue to walk by faith? Was he going to trust the Lord even in a time of famine? No, because in this test of faith, Abram walks by sight and not by faith. So here is the failure of Abram. We're talking about the testing of faith. And here, if Abram was sitting in exam, he flunked the test. He failed. He got an F in the test. Failure. Did not do what God wanted him to do. He went down to Egypt. He wasn't walking by faith. That's why we see him going down to Egypt. He has his eyes on the famine and not on the Lord. Do we ever do that? Oh, we do that. We do that all the time. We have our eyes on the famine and not on the Lord. And yet, as you look at the passage, and Genesis 12 from verse 10 deals with it, it does seem as if things are going well for a time. But as often happens in our lives, the appearance and the reality were not quite the same. And again, Abram is lacking in faith, because he tells what you would maybe describe as a white lie. But, of course, there are no white lies. They're all black as hell itself. There are no white lies. It was a half-truth. But a half-truth is an untruth. 
And what was that half-truth? Well, he tried to deceive the Pharaoh in the matter of Sarah. Look at chapter 12 from verse 11. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. You are a good looking woman. You are so pretty. That's what Abram thought of her, and no doubt it was true. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Let's get rid of him so that we can have her. That's what he thought. He's not trusting the Lord. He's using human reasoning. So what does he do? Verse 13, he says to Sarah, Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Well now, that was half true, because Sarah was his half-sister. So Abram's using a cunning device here. But he's not really telling the truth. And by the way, years later he did the same thing in connection with Abimelech. If you study Genesis chapter 20, just a few pages over, he was journeying again toward the south, and it says in verse 2, And Abram said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And it didn't work out too well. And only for God's goodness, Abimelech was spared. See, Abram is not walking by faith in these instances. He's trying to work things out himself. But then you go into chapter 13 and chapter 14 of Genesis. Don't have time to read all that at the present time. But we would see there how Abram passed the tests of his faith in the matter of his nephew Lot and the battle with the kings. He got up a party together and went and rescued Lot from their clutches. He was operating by faith. Here he gets an A plus in the test. He did what was right before God. He trusted the Lord and the Lord blessed him. But then here's another aberration. There comes the situation with Sarai's handmaid Hagar. We know the story. Abram's an old man. He's really old. His wife is really old. God has told him, you're going to have a son. And Abram's looking at her and he's thinking, you were a pretty woman to look upon, but you're 90 now. And I'm 100. It's not going to happen. That's what he's thinking. It is not going to happen. So Sarah says, well now here's what to do. Instead of waiting, you can take my handmaid Hagar and have a child with her. And that's what happened. And rather than waiting for God's time for the fulfillment of the promise of a seed, the seed, Abraham operates by sight and not by faith. So here he's back to failing another exam. He gets an F again. Failure. Oh, there's a seed, all right. And you might say, well, that was miraculous too, wasn't it? Because Abraham was an old, old man. And he still fathered a child at that age. That's a miracle, isn't it? Surely that must be God's will. But that was not God's way. He should have waited. Ishmael was not the one that was promised. It was the child of the flesh, not the child of the promise. He should have waited 
But you see, waiting is a hard thing to do. That's the testing of our faith. We don't want to wait. And we're living in an age when people don't want to wait for anything. People want everything yesterday. Used to be instant coffee, now it's instant everything. People don't want to wait. Abraham didn't want to wait. But he should have waited. Waiting is a hard test of faith. Do you ever read in the scripture, wait on the Lord? Be of good courage, he shall strengthen thine heart. Sometimes we have to wait on the Lord, but sometimes we have to wait for the Lord. God is never late. But as a result of not walking by faith in this instance, the Ishmael versus Isaac conflict arose. And oh, what trouble that's brought into this world. And that's still with us today. That's the key to what's going on in the Middle East. It's Ishmael and Isaac. Half-brothers. But yet another example of the testing of faith was that final test in Genesis 22. Oh, what a test that was. In the meantime, the Lord has answered prayer. He's given Isaac, a child of his old age. He and Sarah have this young boy. At this stage, he's probably about 17. And it says in Genesis 22, verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. That's an unfortunate word in the English in a sense, unless you understand that it means trial. God doesn't tempt anyone to evil and can't be tempted by evil, James chapter 1 tells us. But it means test. God did test or did try Abram. And God said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, God said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And I can imagine some believers would have said, Are you kidding me, Lord? Really? Here's all this time that has elapsed. You've finally given me the child of promise. I have this child. He's growing up. And you want me to take him and offer him up for a burnt offering? But you don't find here any resistance by Abraham at all. None. Because he saddled the animal. He takes two of his young men with him. He takes Isaac. He cleaves wood for the burnt offering. He rises up and he goes to the place of which God had told him. Abraham gets an A plus again in this exam. He's walking by faith. Oh, but what a test. When God is asking the unthinkable of him. Did this not seem to be an unreasonable request? To human reasoning it would be, but Abraham obeyed in faith. He trusted God. You know why? Because he believed that even if Isaac should be put to death, that God would perform a miracle of resurrection. How do you know that? How do you know that that's what Abraham believed? Because I've read the Bible. Go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 again. Verses we read earlier. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, that's for the word tempt, tempted, he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Here's the key. Accounting 
or believing or reckoning that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Or typically, when the young man was tied to that altar and then the Lord stopped him by saying, no, don't kill him, take him off the altar and here's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, take that beast and offer him up in the stead of Isaac. You have a wonderful type there of the Lord Jesus Christ, where at first Isaac is a type of Christ, then the type changes and Isaac becomes a type of the sinner for whom the lamb is offered. And so Isaac is received back by his father, typically having been raised from the dead. He was never killed, but in a figure, typically that's what happened, because Abraham believed that. Even though the promise of the seed appeared to be in jeopardy, Abraham trusted in God completely. So we've talked about the failure of Abraham. But here's the faithfulness of Abraham. Abraham trusted in God 100%. And as we look at Abraham's life, we could examine in more detail some more lessons about the life of faith. But there are Lessons, not only in him, but in the other patriarchs as well. Think about Isaac. In Genesis, Isaac's part in the story is relatively brief compared to that of Abraham and Jacob. But the important thing to note about Isaac is that he was the promised seed leading on to the coming of the Messiah, Christ. So before there could be a Christ, there had to be an Isaac. That's why that promise was so important, you see. That's why it was so important that something happened there on Mount Moriah so that Isaac would not be killed. Because God's promise had to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. But there was time to wait before the seed was manifested again, this time in Jacob. You know what's interesting about Isaac? Isaac didn't walk by sight as his father had done in the matter of Hagar Abraham couldn't wait at his wife's instigation he took matters into his own hands with Hagar from which Ishmael was born but Isaac by way of contrast prayed about the matter of a seed and if we were to study that we would see that this is so the seed would come in answer to prayer that's always the right thing to do Instead of being hasty and taking action that we might later regret in circumstances where we're being tried, we should pray. Say, but pastor, I have prayed. Yes, and you have to keep on praying. And continue to wait upon the Lord. And that's what Isaac did. It took time. Do you know that Isaac was 60 years old by the time the seed came? So for 20 years he prayed about Rebecca's barrenness. His wife couldn't have a child for 20 years. And Isaac didn't say, well I know what my old dad did, I'll do the same thing. No. He waited on the Lord. He prayed. Because you see, faith is tested and it's tested over time. It's tested over time. You'll find that your whole Christian life is a life of testing and trial. But after Isaac had prayed a good while, Jacob came. And as we read on, the concern for a seed was manifested in Leah and Rachel, but God continued to be faithful. And eventually in Genesis, we read about Joseph. 
What a wonderful story that is. How God's plan to preserve the seed from which the Messiah would come in that family was carried out. The narrative of Joseph is full of theological truth, beautiful pictures of the life of faith, lessons for living by faith. God had a plan and a purpose in everything. I'm sure that young Joseph didn't feel very good when he was down in that pit. And then he was taken by those slave traders down into Egypt when he was falsely accused and thrown in prison and he was there with his feet in stocks for two years. I'm sure he thought to himself, well, I wonder about God's promise. Well, actually he didn't. He didn't because when the Lord's word came, he was tried, according to the psalmist. When his feet were in irons, But I believe that Joseph knew that the promises that he hadn't gotten from the Lord as a young man would be carried out. And that's exactly what happened. God preserved the family and the nation. God meant the whole series of events unto good. And that was all made clear by God's providential working throughout this story. And at various points in the Bible, as I reminded you last week, When the preservation of the seed, the promised seed, appeared to be in jeopardy, God always stepped in. Pharaoh tried to destroy the seed in Exodus chapter 1 by having the babies killed, all the male children in Israel. But God had two godly midwives who wouldn't do what he suggested. And so the seed was preserved. Satan's effort to stop the seed of the woman reversing the curse was thwarted. Every time the promise of Genesis 3.15 appeared to be in danger of not coming to pass, right on through Israel's history, up until and including the time when Jesus came, the Lord always stepped in. And all those occasions prior to the cross, including when Herod had all the little babies killed, when they tried to take the Lord and cast him down headlong from that place at Nazareth, the Lord always stepped in. Because though the devil was attempting to thwart the great promise of Genesis 3.15, he couldn't do it. The Lord was going to make sure that the promise came to fulfillment. And so the promised seed came. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, your faith will be tested. Sometimes your faith will be tested to such a degree that you can hardly, you feel, stand it. But yet, as we wait on the Lord, we see the outfolding of his purpose. We realize that God is good and that everything that has happened, he meant unto good for the fulfillment of his word. And the Lord help us to trust him. And the Lord help us not to fail the test and seek to walk by sight rather than by faith. May we trust in the Lord and do good so that we might dwell in the land and be established. May God bless his word to all of our hearts.